I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi everyone, thanks for being here. I'm re- can you hear me? Okay, if, if at any point you can't, can you, can you wave? Um, I'm really, really pleased to be here in conversation with Emily. Um, I'd heard word about this book, people kept saying to me... You must read Notes to Self. And then I got my hands on a copy and I was not disappointed. Um, so Emily is an associate professor in modern drama at UCD in Dublin. And I think this is right. You work generally in the field of Irish memory studies. Would that be yeah. accurate? We may come back to that. Um, so Notes to Self became um, a bestseller published by Tramp Press in Ireland. And now it's over here, thanks to Hamish Hamilton. And it's won three awards... The Butler Literary Award, the Irish Book Award, and I've forgotten... At Newcomer of the Year yes. Award, yeah. Well-deserved, they all are. Um, there are so many things that I'm excited to talk with Emily about. Um, I found it a really just so pleasingly kind of fresh and direct and clear kind of singing piece of writing. And it touches on so many vital things that are so of the moment, as well as, of course, being so kind of historically familiar to us. So let's, let's get into it. Um, can I ask you first about the title? I was really intrigued by the title. And I think you, in the book, you come towards the end to a sort of explanation of the title in a way. But can you tell us about how that came about? Yeah, the, the ti- titles are really hard, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a long time trying to work out you know, what could encapsulate what I was trying to do with the book. And, and as you say, you know, towards the end of the book, I start to think, oh, well, maybe what I'm doing is a compendium of notes to self. But actually, the, the title has a really banal explanation, which is that I write things to myself constantly, right? Um, bits of paper, backets of like tickets... Um, torn out of the newspaper, you know, any white space at all, and I kind of collect them, and uh, and then every so often I kind of decant them. And uh, I was I was in the kitchen one day, and my partner so this is like small mountain of bits of receipts and things, and he said, "What will I do with these notes to self?" And and I thought, "Oh, it's the title. That is what I do. <laughs> I write notes to self all the time." And so the the reason it fits is because I feel like the book as I was writing it I was trying to write it for myself in a couple of different ways partly because I think it was the book that I needed to read and that book didn't exist so I had to write it Um, but also because I couldn't imagine anybody ever reading it which is slightly bizarre to say now that thousands of people have Um, but also I had to forget that people were going to read it in order to write it Um, it's so personal that to imagine uh, you know, an end reader would have shaped it in a particular way that might have made me try to, m- try to make it 
pleasing to them or you know political in a way or whatever and I actually had to forget that and try and write a narrative that was as true to my internal narrative as possible um, not quite my internal narrative but where I had, had to uh, forget the end reader and I think that's actually very important because if you're writing for somebody else you you are writing to their agenda and not to your own mm-hmm. that's really interesting I mean we'll come back I think at various points to this question of the relationship between oneself and the reader and how that kind of contract that relationship is imagined when you're writing about such personal material because um, for those of you who don't know in the book Emily talks about um, her father's struggles with alcoholism, her parents' divorce. No, her parents not divorced. Not divorced their separation, yeah. but not divorce. Um, infertility, miscarriage, a stillborn child of her sisters. All sorts of incredibly personal and very painful um, experiences. And I was really struck by the, the first line of the book, actually. If, oh, well, do you want to read? Where were you going to read from? I was going to read quite late. Yeah. Okay. Or, but I actually, I can, read, I can read a bit from From the Baby Years. Yeah, okay, read okay. that now. Yeah, th- so if, it, this is particularly useful, I guess, if, if you haven't read um, any of the collection. And um, this is, well, it doesn't need any explanation because it's the very beginning of the essay. It's the second essay, which is called From the Baby Years. I pee on sticks and into sample cups. I pee on my own hand when the stream won't obey. I open my legs wide for sex, for the doctor's speculum. I hold my arm out for needles and blood pressure monitors and sometimes to grasp onto my partner as he sits next to me. I am fearful and hopeful and shameful. I worry that I am empty or that I am full of the wrong things. I worry that I am disappearing, eroding, failing. I do not know what to do with all these feelings. I only want to be a mother. Why is that so easy for some people and so hard for others? Why is it so hard for me? The question was always difficult. Do I want kids? I agonized for years. I tried to stage it as a debate with pros and cons. I weighed freedom against love, selfishness against selflessness, presence against legacy. In my 20s and early 30s, I watched as my friends answered the question with a yes and became parents. I saw the shock on their faces, the tiredness in their eyes, the extraordinary range of emotions provoked by the new person they had made. And I saw the love. I was not alone in this agonizing negotiation. My partner, R, felt the same. Together, we talked about the possibilities of becoming parents. Together, we talked almost nostalgically about our lives as people who loved quiet and calm and the space to read and write. On the page, those may seem like little virtues, but that list represented for me, for us, a peaceful, happy, fulfilling life. A child would mean giving all that up for years. Would it be worth it? I was anxious that I would reenact my parents' mistakes, anxious for my relationship, anxious that, confronted with a small, crying person whose needs I would have to meet, I would feel it was an impossible task. It felt like a blind choice between what I had and what I might have. It felt like I was risking everything, and I did not know that it would be worth it. I meet some friends in a park one Saturday morning and we sit and talk and drink our takeaway coffees and watch their children playing on slides and swings and that thing that spins round and round. One of the kids falls off 
There is soft bark underfoot, and the child is not harmed, but shaken, she runs over to her mother, buries her head in her lap, looking for a cuddle. And there it is, the love. My stomach churns and I have to stand to disguise my sudden influx of emotions. Releasing her mother, the child sees me standing there, and she takes my hand. She guides me to the swing set, and I lift her up and start to swing her, and she laughs and smiles, all shock forgotten. And there it is again, the love. The love undoes me and all my protests about peace and quiet and calm. I want this love. Thank you. One of the things that I think the book seems to me to be about is kind of spaces of limbo. So the limbo, for instance, of not knowing if you can have a child and the sort of the, the constant waiting room of um, trying to have children, the limbo of um, the miscarriage that you've experienced. So a miscarriage where for a while you weren't told what was happening because of the law in Ireland. Um, the limbo of your parents being separated but not divorced. And I... It led me to reflect on how, in your particular case, living in Ireland, there was a kind of collusion of the state and the church in these kind of psychological spaces of limbo that were incredibly painful. And obviously the book came out at such a kind of, around such a momentous time with the changing in the abortion law in Ireland. And I was wondering if that, was, if that sort of limbo aspect of these experiences was something that was conscious to you as you were writing the book. So it's funny, when you're in limbo, you don't know you're in limbo, right? Because you're in it, and you're surrounded by it, and it's, it's this formless thing, and you, you struggle to get to grips with it. And so I, I think, again, you know, with any kind of life writing, you have to be slightly the other side of it in order to have any kind of perspective on it. And I certainly agree uh, with you about this sense in which then when you find yourself in an ambiguous legal position, so, you know, with the illegality of abortion in Ireland, it's then very hard for anybody who finds themselves in, um, with, with, a, with a difficult pregnancy. Um, hopefully, now, as of January, that will no longer be the case. But the other thing that I wanted to do, really, with the book was not just to stick with those moments, but to think about how there are, in our lives, so many kind of contradictory elements. So what the, the essay about my parents is called Speaking, Not Speaking, right? The, the idea that we can be talking about something and yet maintaining a social or cultural silence about something at exactly the same time as we're making noise about it. And that we can be sad and happy at the same time. And actually, the essay that I just read from, from the baby years, one of the points of its progression, its arc, is that I get to a place where I find love in other ways, right? That, that I'm embracing love from different directions. And I, that we, but I can still be sad at the same time at what I've lost. So that we learn to carry maybe an internal limbo, but, but to, to work with that. And, and what I like about the essay form, and you know, why I read so many of them, by so, particularly by women, um, is that essays seem to be able as a form to encompass that kind of contradiction and that you can, because they're thematic usually, you can look at one subject from several different viewpoints, from different directions. You can say, oh, this, but also this. 
and you can acknowledge and say, hang on a second, am I contradicting myself? Well, yes, I am, but that's okay because life is contradictory and because we aren't just one thing. We are multiple. We have many different emotions um, and at different points or, you know, at different times of the day, a little bit like the weather, you know, constantly <laughs> shifting and changing, um, that that's how the internal climate feels. And I was, and I was, I really was trying to capture that. And again, you know, perhaps again, this is part of the, point of the title is to capture it for myself first and foremost to try and make sense of it and um, the funny side of that is that then and you would know this yourself as well once you have written it down that becomes a story mm-hmm. and so it looks like okay now it has a beginning a middle and an end but actually when you're living through it it doesn't feel like that mm-hmm. at all um, and and because my life continues I continue to live my life it doesn't feel like that either mm-hmm. it feels like it it's an ongoing narrative so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm embracing the limbo and I'm going with it. But it, I, I think it's a very exciting way to write. And that's why I, I tried to go in that direction. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, it's beautifully done in the essays, the way, I mean, for instance, the one, the one about your parents I found really moving, the way, you know, there's this complicated history. They separated when you were five, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've had their ups and downs. You and your sister have had your ups and downs and, you know, relationships over a long period of time change and shift. And there's, there's something kind of really touching about the way in which you're bemused by their relationship. And, you know, sometimes it, it angers you. Perhaps they haven't taken responsibility in certain ways. And certainly that's an issue in the essay about your father, that there are moments of anger where you feel like he doesn't... I mean, he, he writes an article and says he doesn't regret any of his years of drinking. And you're flung into a rage, understandably, because it wasn't all... I would say I would go further than you. moments of anger. <laughs> right, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to impose anger. Yeah. I'm kind of really, really good at the moment. Absolutely, fair enough, yeah. Um, but there's also a touching kind of affection, I think, that you yeah. have for that, you know, for the ways in which sometimes our own behaviour or the behaviour of people around us is not... just doesn't make sense to them, to you, yeah. you know, so... So the essays aren't a way of trying to hold people accountable. They're trying to understand the conditions in which people act, often mostly very irrationally. (laughs) Um, But I suppose there are so many things I want to ask you. But okay, Um, the question of the style, I think, and, and this issue about writing in the first person. So, you know, you write very, very frankly in this really sort of, incredibly lucid and analytic way and I don't mean analytic as in cold but as in you are dissecting something you're, mm-hmm. you're really examining the dynamics of it and it but it's done with a kind of tenderness at the same time and it's incredibly um personal material and you know the opening line of the book if you don't mind me reading it is by the time we find him, he has been lying in a small pool of his own shit for several hours. And I was actually struck by um, the, the resonance with Lisa Pininesi's new book, Everyday Madness, that's about grief after her partner of many decades died. And that too opens with the scene of her partner, who's very, very ill, um, lying in his own shit. And the book has this kind of very um, kind of visceral focus there's a, there's a kind of constant return to to blood to menstrual mm. blood to um you know checking your own cervical mucus during the kind of baby years um 
And, you know, these are things that we don't kind of go up to people at parties and, and say, oh, I hi, do now. let me tell you, right, exactly. So the experience of publishing a book like this changes your relationship yeah. to, to other people and changes the way in which people approach you. And I would like to hear a bit more about how you feel about that, and it, particularly in terms of the kind of politics of how women are often expected to be the disclosing confessional mm. Ones. See, confessional, right? So confessional is a word that I have an ambivalent relationship to um, because I don't believe the book is confessional. And sometimes people label it that, and I understand why they do, because they do open up about things that we normally keep closed and that we, you know... When I, was, when I was writing it in my head, I had this almost kind of mantra. I was thinking, these are the things I think at 4 a.m., right, that I only allow myself to admit to myself in the darkness, right, and that I would never say to anybody else, and for some reason I'm now publishing for the world to read, um, which is not a rational decision, I think, in many ways. But it's not confessional, because I don't feel that I am confessing it, I feel like I am telling it, I am narrating it, and I get to decide how I want to narrate it. And it's a funny thing where um, I am obviously completely open about everything, but I have, I have shaped it in the way that I want. And when people also say to me that it's like reading my diary, and again, I, re- I appreciate these comments because I get what they're saying. Right? They're, to me, what they're saying is, oh, I felt like it was genuine emotion. Right? You weren't trying to hide anything, and it was, the in- it was your internal voice, and I love that. But it's not my diary. A, I don't keep a diary. <laughs> and, um, and B, like, I worked really, really hard at it and, and wrote it very, very deliberately the way that I wrote it and spent as much time editing it and between myself and the editors and my partner, who was the kind of co-pilot of this book, spent as much time editing it as writing it, which was actually the bit where it got good, right? Where it went from being my diary to the, to the book that is now out in the world. And... So the, the first person thing is, is kind of tricksy for readers, I think, where you're asking them to trust you and you're inviting them in, but at the same time then I'm the one sitting here now going, but it's not, you know, I have, to, I have decided. Mm-hmm. But the, there, are, there are things that are not in the book, whether because, and you mentioned my parents, you know, whether because actually at some point I started to feel like a voyeur of my parents' mm-hmm. relationship and my parents' lives. And it wasn't fair for me to do that no matter how chaotic they made my childhood. And this was not the space for that. And I had to pull back and instead think, this is not... I have to tell only my own story as far as possible. Mm. And uh, so there are things that are not in the book for kind of ethical reasons and um, things that you would confess to your diary, but that actually you have to be careful. And then in in the fifth essay, the essay about being a teenager which for many reasons was the hardest for me to write. Um, at the end of the essay, and I was trying to work out how to finish it, and then I, I started trying to work out why I wanted to write the essay in the first place about the difficult things that I had never told anybody before. And I realized that actually it was much more powerful to me to be open about it than to be closed about it. And that there is, it is a very powerful thing to get to pick the words and get to choose them and put them on the page in terms of how you want to describe your life and your emotions. And that was very... uh, It it felt like a kind of transcendent moment Mm -hmm. for me when I realised that. I find that really fascinating because I think that 
when, when anyone writes in the first person, perhaps especially women, for me this question of the difference between speech and writing really comes to the fore. Because I think that if you, if you kind of go up to somebody you don't know and say, listen, I want to tell you all about you know, my miscarriage or my abortion or, or the sexual assault that I experienced or whatever it is, you can sort of, you expect in a way to have a conversation, but writing is not the same, is it? Writing is yeah. not actually a conversation. Even if you, even if you welcome and, and are very moved by people's responses to writing, it's n- you're not giving somebody permission to come up and say, so tell me about the assault. <laughs> People do, though. But they do. They do. <laughs> and it's complicated to know how it to is. respond. But I, it is. And one of the complications is actually that I don't know that I feel emotionally adequate to people's responses. And because while people do, they come up and they, they can ask what would be, under any other circumstance, deeply inappropriate questions, but I have, as I've said, made, you know, put it out in the world. So I am prepared for it to a degree. But actually, then, what normally comes next, and I get a lot of people who email me or who write to me, um, is that they start to tell me their stories. Mm. At which point it does feel like it's becoming a conversation. Mm. And, and, you know they will say that the emotion or the uh, experience that I, try, that I write about is, has been also the same for them and that they have never seen it written down before and never encountered it before and that that feels like, A, totally worthwhile <laughs> to, to take the risk in publishing it because I know that when I have that reaction as a reader to a writer that I admire, I know that they have risked something. I know that there has been something at stake mm. for that writer and they're invested and that makes it so much more worthwhile as a reader and then obviously for them as a writer. Um, the, the resistance to it though is, and maybe this was at the heart of me deliberately writing an essay called um, Notes on Bleeding and Other Crimes, which is the central center essay in the book, which is about having periods and uh, having bodily hair and basically, you know, the, the day-to-day boring realities of having a female body. And uh, I was both reluctant and determined to write it for mm-hmm. the, some of the reasons you outlined, because women are expected to be the ones who demonstrate their emotions and who perform them and who, who do the emotional labour to talk about themselves. But also, I was really, I was really resistant to this idea that of talking about my body in a culture where women are so often over-associated and over-identified with their bodies, and where in a profession, as an academic, where I have tried to distance myself from my own body, and, I, and I, in, in unconscious ways, um, because I was trying to participate in an intellectual realm where we had to leave our, our femaleness at the door and probably you could argue our maleness at the door, as in, in terms of bodies at the door as well, and, and come in and have these disembodied conversations. And actually, maybe the process of writing notes to self, and certainly the process of publishing it, has been about you know, coming into my body and saying, oh, the body thinks, not just feels and experiences, and to validate that as an approach. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's, <laughs> it's been an eye-opener for me as well. Mm. I was really interested in that um, that essay at the end that's about being a teacher and yeah. being in a university as a woman. Um, it's called This Is Not On The Exam. And it's a, it's a really beautiful kind of exploration of, of, what, of what we do as teachers and what is expected of you 
institutionally, but also what might be kind of emotionally required of being in a university. And, and I felt that a thread throughout a lot of the essays, but that seemed to kind of really culminate in that last one, was the, the sort of tension that we imagine exists between strength on the one hand and vulnerability mm. on the other. And I wondered if you could say a bit about that, perhaps. Yeah, it's, it's something I still struggle with and um, in that uh, to, to admit to being vulnerable, I still think, oh, really? Really? Um, because, you know, you want to be, be the tough person who, who doesn't admit to weakness. But actually, that's just not true. <laughs> Nobody's life is like that. I remember, when, I remember when somebody told me about imposter syndrome and uh, I was a friend of mine, she's also um, a teacher and she said, oh, what's your worst fear? And I said, oh God, maybe someone is going to find out I'm a fraud. And she said, oh, Emily, you're just an academic. It's not a fear. Like, this is normal. And uh, she said, Don't, haven't you heard of imposter syndrome? And I was like, what is this? And she's like, you know, where you feel that you're, hence the title, an imposter, right? And uh, I was like, this is amazing, you know, it's know not just me. And, and those kind of liberating moments where people admit to their vulnerabilities, admit to their inner fears, and that creates incredible solidarity. Mm-hmm. And as a result, but solidarity almost with yourself first and then with the wider community. And as a result, a much greater sense of connection to who you are and authenticity. Another word I used to cringe at. <laughs> um, but now I'm like... No, not really. I'm not, I'm not quite at this slogan stage with it. Um, but thinking, yeah, it, it, is, it is much more powerful to, to move towards the thing that you find difficult and the thing that makes you uncomfortable than to pretend that it doesn't exist and to perform some fantasy. And the, uh, one of the worst moments that I describe in that essay is, or it felt one of the worst moments to me, was where... I had to lock my office door because I was just, I felt so physically overwhelmed. Um, and my, it turns out my, you cannot lock my office door from the inside. I can. So <laughs> I useful. had to wedge a chair against my office door <laughs> and lie on the floor. And I just thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I cannot, you know, I just can't. And I had to teach in 10 minutes. And I just lay there thinking, I can't do it. And then, you know, I look at my watch and it's, I've got to teach in a minute. And I just get up, take the chair away, go out and teach and try. Because the, the, my students who are amazing are there in the class and they have their own vulnerabilities mm. that they're bringing into the room and, and to, their, to their lives. And uh, I've, I've got to show up. But there are those moments where you think, you know, I can't go on. And, but yeah. it's interesting that, I mean, I think, you know, women are in quite a bind in relation to that kind of, vulnerability that in a, that in a way is part of like a, what's required of us in, in the sense that some of the emotional labour of being a woman in a university is being expected to be kind and pastoral and nurturing and the students sometimes gravitate to the women because they think they will be you know easier to talk to about their problems um, so you get this kind of gender division mm-hmm. of labour in the university and sometimes my response to that you know is to feel angry about that because I sometimes think like well why just because I'm a woman should I spend more time away from my own research and writing being nice to people when that's not expected of my male colleagues but at the same time I don't want to be in university where kindness and empathy and support are not expected of us because 
you know, our students are coping with all kinds of difficulties, and I think it's it's right that we're there to listen to them and make them feel heard and cared for. But I don't want to be the only one doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's that thing of you know, I think it, it's it's a virtue to to traffic in vulnerability and care, but it's unequally distributed. Therefore, I resent doing it. It is, and when you have something that you need to do which is you know a book or a lecture or you know your own life maintenance and you need to create a wall or a boundary and act ruthlessly and not do mm. that extra commitment and care you realize you a you're you're becoming part of the unequal distribution and mm. passing it on to most likely other female colleagues to soldier yeah. to, or to shoulder rather more of the burden um, but then sometimes you also recognise that you have to do that. You have to be ruthless, right? That there, there, there are mm. boundaries of um, self-protection that need to come into play. Um, and where also where, say, you're not having a good time, you can't because you risk overwhelming the student who comes into your office. Mm. Um, so, you know, there is the other thing that I think that universities are incredibly anxious places at this point and mo a lot of that anxiety is coming from students and academics are not trained to deal with that and the under-resourcing I mean you know we could now the two of us could get <laughs> yeah. into a long conversation I'm, I'm guessing about the under-resourcing of third level education but it is it is in a there is no safety net anymore and so you know what do you do in a, what in a a corporate, very corporatized situation um, where you see the values that you hold in esteem, like kindness and compassion, as well as intellectual rigor and engagement, um, not, there not being enough space for those. You literally plug the gap with your own body mm. and your own mind and your own resources. The only answer to under-resourcing is for us to then over-resource. And that is depleting academics and I imagine in lots of other industries we're not alone in this that is majorly depleting us and at some point you can't do more with less you can only do less with less and that point is com coming really fast mm. yes and it's, it's you know it's funny it <laughs> well it's funny because after the publication of notes in Ireland you know <laughs> My own university noticed, shall we say, mm -hmm. and I have had conversations with people who are at managerial levels about this. And one person who, you know, in the university who's, you know, in a very advanced position who normally wouldn't know who I was, uh, said, it will surprise you to learn that I agree with almost everything you say. And I said, that's great. What is going to change? Mm. And he said, nothing. Oh. So that this chilling. is, you know, we talk about, you say, we have to call it out. We have to speak the truth. <laughs> speak the truth. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, yeah. So that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. So the kind of the politics of, of truth telling and speech, um, especially since Me Too. And and I think, you know, your, your book is very particular, partly because it is set in Ireland. And you, you give us a kind of, um, you know, indirect history of the effect of Irish abortion law and marriage law on really kind of textured and sometimes quite subtle experiences. So, you know, I've read quite a lot about the, um, the history of abortion law in Ireland, but 
the, the scene where you talk about um, the pregnancy, where there was no heartbeat, but the fetus was growing, and you're in this excruciating situation, and nobody can tell you what's going on, because legally, they're vulnerable. Um, I mean, for me, that re- it really hit home. It made me kind of think about how there's a, there's a kind of added um, urgency of hearing these kind of stories about about these places that are very they're so close to us, and obviously Northern Ireland is still such a huge issue in terms of abortion law. Um, they're so close. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And yet so far. And so I felt kind of like doubly like moved again by the, the importance of, of just telling those stories, that very fine-grained experience that I, you know, I wouldn't have thought about previously. And so I think especially given that it's a book um, from Ireland, it's, it's, ob- it's so obvious that it's vital to tell these stories and to speak the truth, and that's an inherently political act. And that, you know, that's a truism we all accept. But I keep thinking about this line that um, Gia Tolentino wrote in The New Yorker at some point in the last year. She said... Oh, yeah, it was after the Kavanaugh hearings. It will be said that Kavanaugh was confirmed despite the Me Too movement. It would be at least as accurate to say that he was confirmed because of it. Women's speech has enraged men and, term- and made them more determined to re-establish the long-standing hierarchy of power. And I feel like there's a way in which um, what the Me Too movement has shown us is not just why it's so important for women to tell their stories. It's just shown us, again that speech is not the thing that changes things, that it, it, has li- it has really limited political power. I mean, yes and no, because, I, because a lot of the stuff around abortion, I think you know, the stories that, that people were telling in Ireland about abortion probably did have a huge effect on they changing did. the law. Yeah, they did. But I, mean, I, have, I think because of predominantly led by women in Ireland, because of storytelling as part of the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which made abortion not only illegal but unconstitutional, w- mm. the way women's bodies in Ireland are legislated has completely changed. That storytelling has done that. But to pick up on, on your point, I think, is to say that, well, storytelling is a dynamic of at least two parts. The telling of the stories is obviously vital, and we put a lot of emphasis on that. But actually... 
just as important, or perhaps more important, is the act of listening. Mm. And, you know, Paul Ricoeur, who's a philosopher of the Holocaust, says that some witnesses never encounter an audience capable of listening to them or hearing what they have to say. And the reason I like that formulation is because when we're looking at trauma or we're looking at painful experience, we so often say, oh, we talk about the silence of the witness or the witness has been silenced or how difficult, how trauma is in itself a silencing effect. But actually, (coughs) witnesses are talking all of the time. We are not listening. And the act of listening is the essential component to whether it's the Me Too movement or the Kavanaugh hearings or the referenda that are happening. I mean, in Ireland, we're lucky that the last couple of referenda we've had, we've got the right results, right? We're going in the right direction. It feels good to be a citizen of that country. Um, But when you realize, and, and then also when you realize that people around you seem to be listening to a completely different, a completely different set of of facts to you, it's, it, that's the most alienating thing. So um, I, I am not or have not in the past maybe been the best listener. I thought that storytelling was about speaking out and, and finding a platform and a- amplifying our voices. And yes, of course it is about that. But it is also about being the audience. So in a strange way, I think storytelling is also about silence. It's about the silence of listening mm-hmm. to other people. Yeah, and I suppose one of, the, one of the things that really struck me in the last year around the kind of politics of speech is that um, the way it seemed to emerge that there was this kind of requirement on women to tell their stories mm. of sexual assault. And you would have you know, interviewers kind of shoving microphones into, women, into women's faces and saying, so tell us about your rape. And, and presumably you've been sexually assaulted too. And this, this kind of invasive supposed listening that actually made a kind of voyeuristic, I think, spectacle of women's pain that seemed to be like feeding off the pain but without necessarily really thinking through what what some kind of, you know, justice would be in the workplace or in the home or in the bedroom or whatever. Um, so I feel, I feel very preoccupied by this question. No, I, and, I, and I completely agree. And, and also, you know, in my, my work on drama, I look, at, I look at testimonial drama. I think about this all the time. I think about mm. the fact that in most cases in the theatre, the audience is sitting in the dark. That's a very passive and quietest position. I talk about empathic quietism, where we empathise with what's happening, with what we're listening to. But that doesn't actually lead to any kind of social change. And so, you know, the... You know, the Me Too explosion um, we can critique I think in terms of again the victim being the person who has to perform their pain mm. over and over uh, and I get the microphone in my face now going okay we have three minutes can you tell me about your experience mm-hmm. of rape and it's extremely intrusive and really offensive um, and, and it feels like a very particular kind of violence um, to be expected to reanimate it mm. again and again for someone else's entertainment, which is effectively what it is. So it's not just... So, I, you know, in ter- talking about storytelling, to bring it back then to the repeal campaign in Ireland, it's that that storytelling and listening was linked to a legislative process. Mm. And again, this is maybe a problem with empathy and... You know, it's great that we've all discovered empathy, um, and, uh, and, I'm <laughs> and I'm trying to learn it because <laughs> other people's emotions really confuse me. Um, but the 
the problem with empathy is that if we base our sense of social solidarity on empathy, then what about people who we can't identify with or who are, in Judith Butler's terms, non-grievable? Um, people who don't look like us, who aren't empathizable with, you know, in a very simple, easy, consumable ways. Uh, no, we have to base social solidarity and equality on fair legislation and, well, all of the things that I'm guessing the people in the room already know. Um, but I, I think, again, it's about not seeing the solution in the um, performance of emotion. Um, that is that will go so far and that is really productive and positive, um, but it is, it is, as you say, a limited form of, uh, of freedom. Sorry, that's quite a depressing no, code. It's it's great. I think it's <laughs> very exciting. It's exactly right. Um, will you need a little bit more for us? Yeah, I, I, since I started with... Um, and and, and you will, if you haven't read it yet, you will probably pick up that the... Essay, um, the essays deal with difficult material. So I thought that I would actually end with something which is um, the bit that I read to, to my mother um, to, because I thought it was one of the rare... There, there isn't much of the book I can read out loud to my mother. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and you'll see why, because again... And I think it encapsulates actually, actually part of the reason for and journey of the book. And I use the word journey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like, you know, don't think about elephants. Um, you will, yeah, now you're all thinking about elephants. No. Um, it was that also making it about hope, right? Not just writing about pain, but also about joy and resilience and hope. So um, this is from the beginning of the final essay. Growing up, I had no bicycle. Coincidentally, I had no friends either. And just as I pretended I was fine hanging out by myself, I pretended I didn't care that I couldn't ride a bike. Then I got too old to start learning, too big for the baby bikes, and so that was it. I didn't learn. While other kids used their bikes to go out into the world, I stayed home reading. If I had to go somewhere, I walked. I told anyone who would listen that I didn't mind because I loved walking. I convinced even myself. Then, in my 30s, when I moved by myself to another country, I thought I might revisit the whole bike thing. After all, if I failed, it wouldn't matter, because no one would know. So I went to the local cycle shop, and in a tiny voice, asked if I could rent an adult bike with stabilizers. As soon as I said it, I wondered if such a thing even existed. But the bearded man behind the counter just nodded and asked me if I wanted to sign up for their adult learners course starting the following month. I blinked. I found it hard to imagine that there were any other adults who did not know how to ride a bicycle, let alone enough to fill a course. Even so, I didn't want to wait. I asked again about renting a learner bike. The guy shook his head at stabilizers, but then he offered to give me one with the pedals taken off. I said, I thought bicycles needed pedals to work. You need to learn to balance first, he said. <laughs> then you can graduate to pedaling. <laughs> so I took the pedalless bike he gave me, found an empty car park with a slope, and started pushing myself along, first taking one foot off the ground, then scarily both. I did that for the whole morning, going round and round the car park. Once I got good at that, I pushed the bike a bit further up the slope. I turned... And then I halted, hands on the brakes, feet welded to the ground. It looked less like a slope now and more like quite a steep hill. 
Maybe I'd done enough for one day. Maybe I didn't really need to learn at all. But I knew the real failure would be to not even try. So I let go. And I glided. For the first time ever, I glided. And I felt the air whoosh past me and the ground move under me. At the bottom of the hill, I skidded to a halt, terror giving way to amazement, amazement to pride. Then I pushed the bike back up to the top and let go again. All I did for the next two days was push myself and the bike to the top of the same small hill, letting go over and over. I was happy. I taught myself to ride a bike. I practically taught myself to fly. I recall that feeling of gliding and flying and whooshing now, and I wonder, what was I so frightened of? And why can't I do that? Just let go more often. Let's have some questions from you. Some hands have shut up. I think there's a mic that's going to come around. Um, thank you very much. That's amazing. Um, I'm just wondering about um, this experience of writing about yourself. Mm-hmm. And do you ever feel when you're writing about yourself that you find yourself sort of taking artistic license and straying off course and then feeling that you lose a sense, you know, the kind of the essence of yourself? Or, you know, do you feel like you diverge from... I'm not going to use the word authentic because <laughs> <laughs> you hate it, but do you know, like... Is, is there ever an anxiety in this kind of writing about, um, uh, yeah, about betraying your yourself? Yes, in term in the anxiety, and there were times when I would find myself writing, uh, and it was particularly when I was trying, particularly actually at the end of essays and the beginning of essays, where I was trying to. Like set it up or sum it up, and when you're summing something up, you know you're trying to say, "Here is the meaning bit, guys." You know, and that's really and I it's really hard to do, and I try to resist it, but you do have to end somehow. You can't just you know full stop the end. And um, and I would I would drift off, and I might go big, you know, and I might go, and therefore the history of the world, right? This is, this is me typing. Um, and, and usually my partner, who was the first reader of it all, would call me on it and say, oh, do we feel that we need to do the whole history of feminism? And <laughs> um, that's not how he speaks <laughs> at all. Um, and I would, for, I would have to sit at my desk and I would have to say, what is it that I really want to say? And strip it back to that and just talk about myself. And that felt like a wildly presumptuous thing to do. And I have said, and, uh, you know, not everybody agrees, but I have said that I think that to write about yourself is to... didn't come naturally to me because it didn't... I thought, you know, tedious life. Why would anybody want to read it? Um, It's not that... It's not tedious. (laughs) And my my publishers are here, so definitely not tedious. Um, uh, But the, um, the point is that I think you can actually, if you want authenticity, you can only write about yourself and you can only write about your direct experience and you have to make, be true to that. Um, and the, in a strange way then, there is also a danger to that in that when I found what I wanted to, when I found it and I wrote it, um, my family read it in draft form 
and there's a, a an part of one of the essays where I talk about um, my sister's first daughter, my niece, um, who died at birth very, very, very tragically. And my mother read that section and she said, uh, she said, that's it, that's exactly how it was. And, and I said, I, I thank you, <laughs> first of all. And then, I, but then I thought that's really dangerous, actually, because that's how it was for me. And that's my version you know, in a few pages of what was weeks of experience, uh, you know, condensed down to what I think I want to say, but how can it be what she wants to say? And how actually the, the autobiographical narrative for the people who are in it, it's quite dangerous because then it's, it's as if you've written their story too. And that, I described it as voyeurism earlier, it feels like a, an act of trespass or theft. And um, so... There are lots of kind of hazards to it, but taking a step back and, and um, not getting lost in the rhetoric of it was the main thing I had to try to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. Um, I'm just interested, we talked a lot about the relationship and like the politics of Ireland and what's been going on in Ireland in terms of the repeal movement and like the interjection in that in your writing and its appearance. And I'm just wondering, because I think there is like, you can trace something that is coming out of Ireland in the, in the moment, which is a growth and a lot of good writing by women. So, you know, like you're looking at Sally Rooney's publications, your publications, Anna Burns winning The Milkman, um, winning the Man Booker Prize. And I was just wondering if, do you think there is something to be said about this growth and this kind of um, outburst of writing coming out of Ireland within a political change in a contextual environment? And what is the relationship and the dynamic that is taking place there, if there is one? <laughs> um, you might have to answer the last part. Um, and, and maybe also sometimes these trends are more visible from outside of the country that you're living in, you know? And um, I'm going to relate this to a question that I sometimes get asked by students when I'm teaching, which is why are, why are all the essays you set by women? Um, and, and I think part of because <laughs> I'm totally sexist, <laughs> is obviously yes. the answer. <laughs> um, but, sorry, biased, that's the word. <laughs> Unconscious bias. Um, because I, th I think, and this is only a partial answer, and it only explains some of it, because I don't believe in totalizing theories, but I think that when you have a cohort of people who have not, been, not had a platform for their voices or their stories and not been listened to for so very long, then actually their stories feel fresh and new and have something to tell us and are different and have different voices. And I think enabling those different voices is and those different voices being enabled is one of the great things about writing at the moment there are just so many strong um, voices coming out and you know obviously I think women I always when women get described as minorities and you think really 51% of the population we're we're how are we the marginalized group still but and, and again, the other thing as well is when you're talking about straight white women being the, the voices from the margins, you're really talking, that's a major cultural problem that needs a shift towards incorporating so many other voices uh, that, that are from different kinds of margins and different kinds of uh, identities. And I think that shift and the shift towards trans voices coming out in Ireland, finally, you know, it just to pick one small example, or um, writers coming out of the asylum system in Ireland, um, out of 
we call it the direct provision system where refugees are, are put in uh, total institutions where they have to live. And um, writers coming out of those backgrounds, again, are doing us a great service um, by sharing their stories. And, and to come back to that earlier point, the best, the only thing we can do, it behoves us to do, it, I use the word behove, um, <laughs> is, is to listen and to respond actively to that. And, and to and to, you know to buy their work so that it keeps and it keeps and um, having a space for it and isn't just the the trend of 2018-2019. Thank you both very much for a really interesting and wide-ranging conversation. I was really struck by what you said about the particular genderedness of confession and how that can be used to devalue the work. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you grapple with that, either in your editing process or as you read other work, other essays by women writers. Yeah, I mean, you know, it is a particular thing that uh, women are so often identified, you know, their work must be autobiographical. And when female writers are interviewed about their work, they're asked how do they juggle kids and the writing life in a way that male writers are not asked. And... Um, the, yeah, the way in which the gendered view of, I mean, you know, two days ago I was at a work event and um, was talking about something uh, and, and the man who was, who was asking me and who I was, you know, giving a kind of pricey of my work to said, you're so young to be involved in, in such difficult work. Oh, my God. And, you know, and, and would he have said that to a man? No. No. So, you know, the way in which whatever profession you're involved in, whether it's writing or academia, this is mine, um, I think the way that gender shapes expectations of you and what you are asked and how your work is framed and addressed are, are just so pervasive and really, really problematic. And in terms of resisting that, I am learning. And one of the things I talk about in the um, final essay is how, though <laughs> I... I'm a university lecturer, so I have a job that requires me to talk for a living. In many ways, I'm not very good at speaking up, um, or haven't been. And in those moments where I get, you know, put down or not listened to, or um, you know, some bloke says, "Oh yeah, my wife is reading your book. It's not really for me," and um, you <laughs> think, "Loads of men have read the book, and they're amazing readers." Just so you know, um, but this, I I'm trying to learn how to respond to that, you know. And, and it's difficult because sometimes if you respond in a negative way, you get put into the other box, which is annoying, angry feminist woman, joyless, doesn't have a sense of humor. And it's really, really hard to get out of that box, too. So it's, 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 a, tricky, it's a tricky one, I think, knowing how to respond and knowing how to... But again, you can't write with that in mind because it's going to destroy, it's going to shut you up and it's going to destroy you know, your voice. So you've got to, you've got to write... And just think, as I say, fuck it. <laughs> just, just write it for yourself. Thank you very much. Um, writers tend to write in order to respond to what they've read. And I'm wondering how your academic background on memory, witnessing, has helped inform your style, because I'm particularly interested in your style of writing, and your own retrospective process of capturing memory and writing about memory. So if you could say a little bit about that. Thank you. 
Um, okay, so in, from an academic perspective, uh, I had written previously about autobiography as a performance of memory and of the self, in which you know I talked, to, I used words like catharsis and healing, and uh, words I wouldn't use again now, having written my own, um, because they're too easy, um, and uh, and don't I think in, embrace the complexity of writing difficult um, stuff. And, uh, and, I, and I thought about, in, in my academic work, about how life writing is about putting a, you know, a narrative shape on something that doesn't have shape. And on how memory is always, as Richard Turdyman says, is always the past made present. Right? So how you feel in the past, and this comes back to your question about authenticity, actually, right at the beginning, right? which is, when I was writing then about being a ch- my memories of being a child is because of everything that has come since and that I know, right? I know what happened after, so it makes it particularly poignant, you know, what, it, what happened when I was five or six. And if everything had been lovely afterwards, I would have probably looked at it back at it as being, you know, just, just I might not have remembered it at all, actually. Um, but you remember particular things because your brain decides that they're important and to retain them. And those all add up to a narrative, but that narrative is always retrospective. That's the academic view. Um, the other view is that I read memoir and particularly food memoirs um, and autobiographical, uh, I can't even say it at this stage, autobiographical writing um, at night because they're really, you know what happens at the end and there isn't quite the sense of suspense so they don't keep you up till two in the morning reading them. <laughs> and then I, it wasn't really until I took a step back and looked at my shelf and realised I had re- read all of these memoirs by women and engage with them for so long and the you know in terms of style it's really hard I think you have to try to avoid influence um, because then you end up being second-rate version of somebody else but you have to be actually the first-rate version of yourself um, but the or try to be the first-rate version of yourself but like writers like Ariel Levy and um, Megan Dawn um, Ariel Levy wrote an incredible uh, essay about her stillbirth, her son's stillbirth, um, called, for the New Yorker, won the Pulitzer, um, called Thanksgiving in Mongolia. Hugely recommended. And Megan Dom has two collections of essays. Um, her collection, second, more recent collection, is called The Unspeakable. And again, uh, starts her first essay is about her mother's death. And my essay about my dad has a lot <coughs> in common with that thematically and also in terms of she she calls it as it is you know (laughs) her essay begins with how um her mother was dying and um they couldn't afford they her apartment was really expensive and she was dying at home and they started packing up her apartment around her as she was dying with a view to not paying another an extra month's rent Right, that's pretty dark as subject matter to admit to, and she does it with full candor, and she just says, "Judge me if you want to judge me," and and I, I, I admired the guts so much for that. So I wanted to be gutsy like writers like that, and uh, so if anything, it was their kind of manifesto for writing clearly and without bullshit and without dressing it up about the things that were difficult that I wanted to follow. Hi, um, it's sort of a follow-on question to that. I was wondering, after writing Notes to Self, has that fed into your academic work in that it's changed now and the distance that you have in an academic text, you're interrogating that more as well? 
Yeah, I, I think it, I think it's inevitable, um, and that would make me a poor academic if it didn't. A poor teacher, you know. Um, the I'm I'm interested in more complicated life stories now and in thinking more complicatedly about them and about to come back to Catherine's opening question about that idea of limbo and contradictoriness and ha- and the kinds of, of narratives that are both and um, and not kind of saying and when you narrativize it then it's released and suddenly you're fine uh, because you narrativize it, you release it, you're fine, and then the next day you're not fine, and then the day, two days after that, you're fine again. You know that it isn't, it, it doesn't just end. It isn't doesn't have a pat ending. And um, one of the things that I love teaching, actually, at the moment, is I teach a lot of graphic novels, which shouldn't be called graphic novels because they're actually graphic memoirs, um, but you know ones that intersect with um, kind of large historical narratives like Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Um, which is really meta in terms of its looking at this, looking at the self. And when I first taught that, it was before notes, and um, and I I really valorized Spiegelman for how he puts the process of writing Mouse into Mouse. Right, it's part he he writes about how how it was written. He includes it, and and now I see that as a technique that he was using, as opposed to. Um, as opposed to being a kind of confessional, I see it actually as a very deliberate technique that he's using. And then most recently, I read an incredible um, series of kind of small graphic memoir um, pieces by an American artist called Linda Barry, um, called 100 Demons, um, where, and amazingly, at the end of it, the final um, section of the book is her, our photograph, is a photographic essay from her on how to paint like she paints. Right, this is kind of, a kind of how to do it and why you should do it and kind of what it has meant to her and the technique of doing it. And, and I just really like that. I find that very open and enabling and, um, and exciting. And so I, I think there's a huge crossover between the non-academic and the academic. And I, I hate the idea that they're separate, even though I actually try and keep them slightly separate in my brain just for my own sanity. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, great question. Thank you. Sorry, I'll keep really short. I was just wondering, do you um, ever feel like there's um, a tension arises when something difficult or bad happens in your life and then you write about it and something very, quite beautiful, you know, art, is drawn from it? Does that make you feel uncomfortable in a way because the, the, the bad thing that's happened to you is, is kind of productive in a weird way? You know, God, you may as well get what you can out of it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, know I don't mean that in a materialistic... I mean, you know... I was going to make some lemons, lemonade joke, but no, I'm actually allergic to lemons, so that wouldn't even work. Um, It actually gives me comfort, right? Because because pain doesn't have to be the end of the story. And because you do get to make something. And I think... and So people do ask me if writing notes was cathartic or healing. Those words. The creativity of it mm-hmm. is enormously powerful and is healing. The uh, re-engaging and reanimating difficult memories, no, not so much. Um, and uh, and the, actually, the making live, and now, you know, the book was first published in Ireland six months ago. I feel like I have almost, certainly in the Irish context, again, back to this point about having to testify in contexts where, you know, this is news, news. 
Um, you know, could you, you know, talk about rape in two minutes? Oh, killing me. But the joy of making this book is just, I mean, so joyful. I cannot, I just loved, loved, loved making it. And I got to make it, I mean, I got to sit down at my desk and be honest with myself as well, which was, you know, we don't often have time and space to do that. And I got to share it with my partner and, you know, lots of really intense <laughs> conversations around the kitchen table. But we are now in a different place than we were before I wrote the book. And it's a better place. It's a stronger place. Um, it's a place where we all know more about commas. Um, <laughs> Always good. But I, I just the joy of making this book. And that's why the book is not bleak, I think, I hope. Um, because it is about that, not just pain. So thank you for asking. And thank you for coming <laughs> and for being here. And I'm really, really happy to talk to people if they don't want to ask questions publicly but want to come up afterwards. It would be lovely to meet as many of you as possible. Thanks What's left so to much. say? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank <laughs> you for being here. Thanks, Emily. Thank you Catherine. so much. And like, I just want to say quickly that I think that's such a nice note to end on, that you know, the writing is like, that's, that's the joy isn't it? Like you get to make something. Yeah. Like everyone's life is full of awful stuff, but it's really amazing that you kind of can create something beautiful out of it. And, it, and do buy it, come and buy it, look at all the copies. <laughs> and it is, you know, it's full of really painful things, but it's also very funny and moving and very touching and it's bracing and gutsy. So all those things that you wanted to, it to be, I thank think, you. are completely what it is. So thank you for writing <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.